Hello guys and welcome to this episode of the podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the wonderful Lido Lada Cafe. If you want some nice food and some even better coffee and some wonderful service, please head on down to the and see the girls at Lido Lada. We love, love everything you do, Wendy and all the girls down there. And thank you for being proud supporters of the show. On this episode, I am joined by the wonderful Dan Cooper. Dan Cooper is an amazing mind. He was in the Australian Special Forces for 10 or more years um, and then he kind of transferred into strength and conditioning coaching in the Queensland Reds rugby union side. And now he is extensively researching threat and stress response and science in um, Queensland. So myself and Dan really dissect and look into stress and threat response and especially these high and intense times where everyone is so upregulated and tense uh, for more uh, better, less uh, words. And um, yeah, we really talk about humans and our perceptions of threat and stress and um, how we perceive that and um, and danger and everything like that. So it is really intense and great episode. Dan's full of so much knowledge. He's a wonderful man and I really enjoyed this episode. Um, I hope everyone gets a lot out of this. Please look and love and, um, after each other. Stay healthy and happy, guys. Love you all. Thanks for your support. Hit us up for any feedback or comments about any show, anything. We are all receptive to the feedback. Love you all, guys. Enjoy. You. Listeners, Snake Edwards on the recorder here. This one's a belter. Dan Cooper, welcome to A Chat With Pat podcast, mate. I appreciate you giving up your time and joining me via Zencaster, mate. Thank you. Yeah, no, absolute pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, mate. Now, I got a hold of you via the 98 Riley Street boys. Um, That podcast was amazing. And I really think, well, obviously, we'll start with your introduction, mate. You want to let the listeners know just a bit more about what you do, mate? Yeah, okay. Okay. So, yeah, I spent most of my time in the military. So, I did about 22 years worth of service in the Army. Uh, The bulk of that was with Special Forces. So, um, I think it worked out to be around 17 to 18 years um, within Special Forces. And then that was obviously during a really, really high-intensity period. Um, So, I sort of joined pre-9-11 and then spent the most of my career sort of on and off deployments uh, through the training cycle that we have there. Uh, and just um, generally been, you know, really busy with work. Sort of midway through that period, I started studying a Bachelor of Science and then sort of dual-hatted with the role I was in on the green role side of things and started working in the human performance program that we are raising over there. Uh, and then the Bachelor's turned into a Master's in Strength and Conditioning and then that led to a Master's of Research looking at how you integrate cognitive strategies or techniques in with your physiological training uh, kind of around perception of effort and how you change perception to get higher workout points higher work outputs uh, and then that sort of was about where I finished my career with defense uh, then I moved into sort of a short period working with the Queensland Red Super Rugby team which I did just under two seasons there uh, and then just through a number of family reasons, I had to leave that and now I've moved on to a full-time PhD scholarship looking at sort of preparing um, sort of elite soldiers for to thrive in high complex environments. Uh, and then outside of all that, I've got all the sort of 
uh, recreational pursuits that I've been doing. So um, like some CrossFit stuff, some ultra endurance stuff, uh, a number of different other events. More recently, uh, a big race in Alaska, which I um, just did, actually did a podcast with the 98 crew during the week around that. So that should be re- out shortly. Yeah, I can't wait to listen to that. And so essentially, if there's a man that knows how to how the body physiologically works and mentally in high sent in high stressful uh, situations, it's you, mate. <laughs> uh, there's still a lot of unknowns, but I'll probably I'm covering some pretty decent ground at the moment. Um, but yeah, I've probably still got more questions and answers myself, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's fair to say that it's pretty untapped and not really the light's not really shined upon on that side of things when we talk about you know, response, threat response physiologically, it's not a really pretty thing to talk about. Like it's not niche. It's pretty scientific, isn't it? And I think people don't, they struggle to get their head around that. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like it's confronting fear ultimately. Mm. Um, you know, so I wasn't studying it when I was with the military, um, but we were constantly exposed to fear. Like everything we did had a fear component to it. So like success in that environment is heavily based on your relationship with fear and how you respond to that. Um, so like even early days, I started out as a young paratrooper when I first joined the infantry and my decision to go airborne was around fear of heights. So I thought the best way to overcome fear of heights is just to pretty much run head, head first into it. Uh, so like the first time I'd ever been in a plane was my first parachute descent. So I think I'd been up in a plane about, 18 to 19 times before I was actually in one that landed. Wow, wow, wow. And like, and you didn't, it took you that long to conquer that specific fear and that response. Um, I don't know. So, they were all parachute jumps. Um, yeah. But, you know, for me, the best way to overcome fear of heights was to join the paras. Uh, and then when I went into special forces, the role there was based around um, sort of a little bit of fear and areas where I'd been least exposed, I sort of just went straight into those areas to sort of confront that head on. Um, so I've always um, been happy to confront fears and even now in a lot of the stuff I'm doing, it's still a lot of the work I'm doing is based around sort of increasing the exposure to things that I've sort of avoided or been uncomfortable with previously. Yeah, and it kind of relates to the current state of play of the world at the moment as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, fear of the unknown is massive, so that's one of our biggest because if there's an unknown presents potential threat uh, and we're kind of negatively biased. So when people mm. start to go through their sort of thought patterns, they become negative really quick and they start with all these, oh, what if this happens, what if that happens type stuff and it's always negative or worst case and then that just spins itself up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I heard um, yeah, a psychologist I'm familiar with because I'm a social worker, but um, yep. Stephen Pinker, he often talks about the negative bias yeah. in society, how it's an actual thing in our head cognitively. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, like, there's no hard evidence that I've come across. There's some pretty good research that has been validated enough times to say that the theory um, is probably the best one we've got for it. Um, but yeah, negative is much stronger than positive um, and it's kind of around a survival thing. So um, I sort of talk about it false positive. So if you're walking along, you hear something, so going back to like a very primitive sort of environment, if you hear something in the bush next to you and you think it's you know a threat or a tiger or something and you react accordingly, you've got a bigger chance of surviving than if you think it's just a lizard or some wind where if you go the other way, you're not prepared for threat. So 
as a sort of survival instinct, if we think worst case, then we're better prepared. Problem is now our environment's so full of these threats or perceived threats, I should say, uh, and all our media and everything relies on the fact that, you know, threat and negative cells is it's just a constant bombardment of it, which we're sort of, yeah, you know, we're less mentally prepared for and that sort of survival type instinct. Has those external factors played a pivotal role in um, impacting people's stress and th- threat response? So you mentioned then, so like media and external factors? Yeah, yeah. So there's some research that looks at people that don't watch the news are, are just generally happier. Um, mm. You know, like you, you can get your information without looking, or it depends on what source you like, um, but you can stay informed without constant bombardment of this stuff. You know, even social media, there's some pretty good data out there that suggests that there's a lot of sort of negative health aspects mentally associated with that and around your usage sort of thing. So it's almost like a dose response. Um, and, you know, if you look at that, there's a lot of comparisons going on on social media. So if you're on there and you make a comparison, that's a threat to who you are sort of thing. Because mm. um, when you look back at almost tribal, like if we're not a part of the tribe or the group or we feel like an outcast, then that's a threat to us. You know, if you're outside the group, then you're in the food chain or something else. You know, you don't have shelter. It's harder to get food. That's sort of, you know, very primitive type of thinking. But we those subconscious biases still exist in the way we think. Like we're not aware of it. But, you know, as you scroll through, there's things there which are just you're going to see as a threat without even realising. Um, mm. And then I've come across some work more recently that looks at the direct link between the visual system and our threat response so that when we're focusing in close, our vigilance goes right up, which then, uh-huh. you know, we're, we perceive more threat. And then when we're under pressure or we perceive threats, that again changes the way we filter information and we look for more threats. So we've just become this, you know, really, really efficient threat detection machine um, where, you know, perception is probably vastly different to reality. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's interesting, that visual, that research you just announced there. That's very yeah. interesting. Um, yeah, I've become really interested in recent um, sort of thing. It's very, very early sort of stuff. Um, you know, they talk about just sort of soft gaze versus hard gaze type of thing where, you know, more of a landscape environment lowers our vigilance and our sort of threat response where when we're uh, up close focusing on sort of very specific information, it goes up, um, sort of, which would probably explain why people are so or enjoy so much going to the beach where they can see the horizon, where people like the outdoors yeah. and all these sort of things where, you know, it's just more of a soft gaze, more of a, you know, a landscape sort of thing as opposed to like real hard focal points where you get on sort of on your phone or, you know, in a confined mm-hmm. office space or computer, these sort of things, um, which sort of lends itself to thinking, you know, how should we be setting up these home working environments? Because if it's a lot, of, yet, a lot of clutter and it's enclosed and you're on a laptop all the time, then potentially you're upregulating your threat system just by the environment. Yeah, and it's that kind of accepting and, and taking in the whole environment as, as what it is instead of just one specific threat essentially yeah yeah um like even if you're under pressure from work to deliver something if you open an email like even the subject line of the email or whoever's sending it that can be enough to initiate a threat response yeah you know, like- and that gets misguided a bit because you know everyone thinks because it's so swept under the rabbit and like you said before it's second nature like we actually we don't really think about it it's a primitive response it happens it just happens so we don't really think about it 
But yeah. like you said, that's a perfect example. I think you mentioned that on the podcast. Or it could be an angry partner. It could be, yeah, you know, yeah. the dishes have got to be done. Yeah. And then you're taking all these threats. And then you, no wonder we have such levels of high high regulation yeah. and anxiety. Yeah, especially now. Like I start homeschooling tomorrow, which is something I've never done. So for me, like that's a, a huge potential risk because um, now I'm responsible for the education of my kids. Um, but the reality is, is the resources are there. The work's been done. So that that's not a huge pressure for me, but it would be very easy for me to perceive that as a pressure, and then that pressure spills over into everything. Yeah, you know, then yeah. I've got all these other sort of things going on, and it'd be very, very easy for me to vent that frustration on my kids tomorrow. Um, and then they're not going to understand where it comes from. All they see is that I've vented anger at them, and they will internalize that as their problem. Um, sort of thing and then you know it's very easy to sort of dig yourself in a lot deeper without even realizing um, where yeah if you can take that step back and sort of reread a lot of things so if you see an email that you think's a threat you read through it you're going to pick up all the threat indicators in there where if you sort of take a slight break come back and reread it you know it could be a very neutral <laughs> email that you yeah initially think yeah. is quite negative so and we all do that. We all do that. We all oh, yeah. perceive something. We all we all we all think of oh, it's a text from mum, she's gonna go off at me, I haven't put away my clothes or something like that. Like it, we all perceive that when it could be something totally different. Yeah. And that's that negative bias essentially. Yeah, it's so quick to happen. And especially if you respond straight away, because it's your emotions straight up. So if you respond to it, like there's no rational thought involved into it. So yeah. your emotion your emotion is basically a threat response. Um and it's very easy to sort of then create something on the other side of that or apply it. Now you're engaged in this sort of, you know, conversation that could have easily been avoided. Yeah, 100%. Now, you mentioned one thing, you know, the emotional response. So essentially if we peel it back to the physiological response, yeah. um, do you care to explain how, in, as, as basic as you can, what are those stages that we go through of threat response um, through our central nervous system and things like that? Yeah, so when we pick up a threat, um, there's a number of responses that we have. So cortisol is upregulated straight away, um, and cortisol actually helps us with our threat response. So it makes us more vigilant. Um, we, we become slightly better at filtering out that information so we can sort of ID a threat, non-threat a little bit quicker um, and a little bit more accurately with that cortisol. So, you know, a lot of negative stuff, sort of gets passed on about cortisol and its impact and yeah like mm. chronic cortisol upregulation isn't good but that very sort of acute controllable amount is required as part of the threat response so the threat response itself or that initial part of stress is a real positive because it creates a physiological environment for adaptation on the other side of it as long as you can downregulate. if you can't downregulate, then you can't maintain that level of vigilance forever and there's a lot of negative impacts um there's also uh your body clock becomes sort of um, almost stalled or it sort of comes a little bit out of sync because that increases your level of adaptability as well and it helps with a little bit of neuroplasticity. Um, Which is the ability to – is that oh, – Your uh, neuroplasticity form, yeah. is just uh, like forming new brain cell connections. Yeah. Cell, new cell connections, increasing the gray matter. Um, if you look at it like a muscle, it just it's like muscle growth. You know, yeah, all learning new skills like, and stuff like that. Yeah, protein synthesis yeah. type stuff. Um, yeah. Sort of thing. So you've got that, which is a positive. Um, a couple of inflammatory markers go up because it's based around, the initial system is based around sort of combat or a physical um, engagement. 
So that allows all your healing to happen a little bit quicker and these sort of things. Um, I was just trying to think what the other ones were. Um, but I think that's sort of the main ones for it. Uh, and then I think there's a little bit, I can't remember what the chemical is, um, uh, BDNF, sorry, gets increased within your brain, which also helps with that neuroplasticity. And it allows the connections between the cells to come a little bit closer so that that signal gets passed faster. So, you know, you're a bit quicker at making that decision. You're a little bit quicker at that execution on the other side of it once you've made that decision. Mm, um, yeah. That- so, yeah, like it, my thoughts are we should be looking at stress and as threat as a positive. Um, yeah. Because it's something that we need. And there's even uh, some research that shows that your perception of whether it's positive or negative is the biggest indicator of whether you actually have chronic issues with stress, like all the cardiovascular type stuff, um, sort of all the all-cause mortality factors where you know, if you're under high stress but you perceive it as just a period that you're going to grow from, then there's actually no negative effects of it whatsoever, where if you perceive it to be negative, uh, then it is negative. So it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy within itself. Yeah, yeah. It's highlighting well, what is, yeah, to you, high stress or not negating through that. You're, you're, yeah. you're training yourself and your, your central nervous system to deal with threats. You can't avoid it. <laughs> You've just got to somewhat deal with it what's there healthily. Yeah, yeah. So like, we're going to come across stress. Like it's everywhere. Every day you come across friction points. And then, you know, like the beauty of it is you get to choose how you just go or how you respond to those friction points. Um, but, yeah, your stress response or threat response is going to fluctuate daily. Um, like even, you know, I was in an environment where it went up for months on end. So if we were deploying, like our vigilance level goes up the second that we, we're in country. Um, you can't maintain that forever, which is why you have a lot more um, sort of injuries the longer uh, operation goes after a certain point. Uh, so we kept ours to a sort of very specific period, which allowed us to maintain good vigilance, but not burn ourselves out. Um, but then, like as you go from day to day, you need to be able to sort of upregulate and downregulate within the environment that you're in, so that you're prepared when you need to be and you're relaxed when you, you can be. Um, and then once you come out of that environment, you need to be able to return to baseline, which is where some people kind of struggle. Yeah. Do you think now you talk about up and down regulation? So um, we talk about we all a lot of people know what up regulation is, but and you mentioned before, do you think people don't have an inability to down regulate properly? And is that why we have such high anxious, well, high anxiety rates in in the world, oh. in Australia specifically? Like because we're so used to being up regulated all the time by stresses and and things like that, we don't have the chance to down regulate. Yeah, I think that's definitely a component. Kind of, to be honest, I'm starting to swim outside my depth here to a degree. Uh, Like this is starting to get, like I look at the response and then how like the the importance of preparation for your response. So like if you understand what a threat is, what the action is, the response that you actually get is quite low compared to not knowing. Um, So like that's why I talk a lot about exposure and these sort of things. Um, But then, yeah, on the other side, I was involved a little bit with some of the work or helping around how guys would sort of downregulate. Um, but, yeah, I think we remove our space to downregulate a lot. So, like, if you uh, go to work and you're in an environment where there's a lot of stress, and, and when I was in sport, like, that's 
an environment where there is a lot of stress and that sort of fluctuates, um, you know, sort of around your win losses, around your big travel weeks, those sort of things. So if I left work there, like coming home and sitting on my phone or watching the news or sort of um, if I went from one stress environment into another, then I've lost the space that I would have where I'd be able to downregulate because we can kind of naturally downregulate if we're given the space. Um, yeah. And people have a really, really good natural coping mechanism um, when they're allowed to use it sort of thing. So like I was always very big on – and the beauty when I was in the Army is that we didn't have any social media anyway, so that was something that <laughs> we didn't have to worry about um, because like information constantly coming in is still like a level of stress. You know, it might not be threat so much, but it's still taking up a lot of cognitive power and it's still decreasing the space you've got to relax um, sort of thing. So, and then, you know, home life, if you don't have a really, or if you don't, if you have a poor home life, then that's going to be another problem. Like you're going to go from work to home and it's just still stress. Um, so, you know, there are a number of things. Like I was always big on riding to and from work where I could. So that was sort yeah. of for me that third space where there was nothing going on. I could just ride or listen to some music or whatever. Um, you know, I've always been big on fitness and a lot of the stuff I do around fitness is more around my own space so that, you know, it's an opportunity for me just to kind of have my own period and I just let my mind wander. Yeah. It sort yeah. of comes up with random thoughts and stuff, random ideas for new races. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I've always been big on sort of, creating space where I don't have to do anything for a period where if you're just constantly being bombarded with information and all this, like you're filtering it constantly, whether it's threatening or not, you're constantly filtering it. So you're always yeah. remaining some level of vigilance. So yeah, I think in a way we've kind of, we've made our lives so busy, we've lost that space to relax. Yeah. So does this space include for you? So I'm, I'm thinking of, um, have, do you, I'm trying to say, within your time researching this, and also being exposed during, you know, during your times of special forces, what strategies can we do to stay in that space? So I automatically think, what do you think about, you know, mindfulness training, meditation, and even breath work? Yeah, do you, yeah. Do you, have you been exposed to that much? Uh, I played around for a little bit when I was in the military. So I looked at heart rate variability, uh, and there was another uh, psychiatrist there that was working at or looking at allostatic load, which is kind of the interplay between heart rate variability and your respiratory rates. Um, and I was looking at HRV as a stress response. It gets used a lot in sport as a recovery tool. Um, and it's kind of just the space between your heartbeats as that changes in sort of milliseconds. So like if you've ever seen a heart rate trace, the gap yeah. between the two R peaks, I think they are, um, they change. So And they should change based on your, server, your central nervous system and how they're sort of interplay with each other as you sort of go up and down in your states of regulation. Mm. So I looked at that. And, yeah, the easiest way to manipulate that or control it is through breath work. So I was looking at it um, sort of as a biofeedback tool, which is like six-second breaths essentially. So you just go through nice six-second in, six-second yeah, out. Yeah, that seems to be the magic number, I think. Yeah. Um, sorry, like, yeah, because um, was it Brian McKenzie? Yeah. I think he, power, from Power Speed Endurance, I utilised that one. Yep. six seconds and it's pretty basic to remember yeah so yeah. i've seen that floated around a bit too yeah. and wim hoff and that kind of lines up with allostatic load so that's almost the ideal uh, breath rate to sync up your spiritual rate and your heartbeat ah um, so there yeah yeah, yeah there is I, I haven't delved into the science too hard on it because um, you just end up down these massive scientific lanes and they consume all your time 
Um, yeah. <laughs> I just, all I needed to know was, okay, what's going to work? Um, and there's a huge amount of science on mindfulness, on meditation, uh, on breathing sort of thing. I don't get too wrapped up in it because I know it works. So for me, it's just like, okay, ah, well, yeah. you know, how do you use that to be an effective tool? Um, and then the big one for me is, is it transferring from, you know, if you get up in the morning, you do five-minute breath work or your, your mindfulness, you know, how well is that transferring into your day? So um, the big thing I found with it was getting guys to play around with it um, was that the compliance was low after a while. Like you have, you always have this initial novelty factor whenever someone starts something new. And then oh, yeah, like a New Year's resolution <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but people are really poor at sticking with things. Um, you know, unless you can make it a really good habit and you sort of create the framework to build that in as a habit so it's just something you do and habit creation is a whole new t- another topic, um, then people would do it for a while and then kind of life gets back in their way and they stop doing it. Um, but the way we were sort of playing around with it was you start it and then you have to expose yourself to stress and do it. So it has to be able to be done under pressure. It's not something that we looked at as a standalone tool where, okay, if something happens, you've got to start breathing to relax because you just didn't, nah. you don't have that time. So, you know, if you can raise your self-awareness of when you're starting to respond, and in a lot of cases you have to respond to a certain threshold, like there's, a, there's almost a threshold for action, and if you stay below that, then you're sort of you're almost in a state of inertia. You won't respond, um, and you're sort of almost more sort of uh, flight or freeze type of thing. So you have to be able to, and depending on what the situation is, you have to let yourself get to that threshold of action. Um, but then you have to be able to control it within that optimal zone because obviously over or under aroused you know, has negatives to it. Um, so we looked yeah. at it, if you could become self-aware to the point where you're in that optimal zone and then you can feel your breathing getting away from you. Like once you become aware, you can yeah. feel it. So it's not so much. Your chest tightens up, you start sweating, yeah. those, those bodily um, responses yeah. start to happen. Yeah. And all your senses go down with it. So you get like a, we call it sensory overload, but it just filters out pretty much everything except the threat that's right in front of you. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you can regain your breath, then you've regained a lot of your, like if you can get awareness that your breath's going up, then a lot of your senses are working again just through the fact that you pick that information up. So then it's just a case of, okay, maybe just think about slowing your breath down, but you need to concentrate on the environment because that's where the important information is. Um, And if people do it long enough, then they do become self-aware and the breath almost becomes an autonomic thing for them where they can sort of work out, okay, yeah, I'm hitting that point where I just need to stop and slow down for a second. And their breath, if they need to concentrate on one or two just to get it to slow down, then so be it. Um, So, yeah, it is effective um, sort of thing. So it's definitely something that uh, we looked at. I've played around with it for a while, but, again, it's sort of – it's just something that kind of phased out over a while. Um, Mm. But then, like, I'm generally aware – of when my breathing rate goes up so like for instance when i first started doing or i've only ever done a few sort of um like conference presentations and within about a minute or two i can tell that i'm talking fast i can tell that my breath rate's up so i sort of try and get that to come down slightly but you can't let that interfere with what you're doing at the time like i couldn't stand there on stage i'll just give us five minutes um so that's that transferable aspect of it yeah yeah so it has to transfer like if it's just something that you do of a morning and it's not transferring to anything then you know, there's more going on um, sort of thing. So 
it's sort of it's definitely something worth doing, but you know, it's just one piece sort of thing. Um, for us, exposure was a big one because we're just constant. Like with threat, we're a prediction machine as well because we want to know outcomes. So if you can predict an outcome, then you can choose the most appropriate response to that prediction and off you go. So a lot of that comes through experience sort of thing. So the more mental models or patterns you can identify within the environment, the more you can understand what that means to you, what's most likely about to happen, and then work out yeah. how you're going to respond. Because uh, if you know, but doesn't that get a bit irky? Oh, sorry, Dan, murky though. If you continuously predict threat response, doesn't that like that leaves a bit of like wiggle? I'm thinking for people who can't really deal with threat, and, and like we're in a society who you know use the term resilience, which we'll touch on. Yeah, yeah. Then they don't want to continuously predict that. They probably want to become more avoidant. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Well, like, the prediction might, yeah. happens subconsciously. So yeah, okay. You don't even know you're doing it. Um, yeah. Like you'll see, like when you're driving along, you're constantly scanning the road for patterns that mm. like, you're going to be able to try and predict what's going on. So the cars around you, the lights in front of you, people that look like they might be about to cross the road, you know, kids on bikes, yeah. soccer balls getting kicked in yards, all these sort of things. A lot of that you're picking up without even realizing and you, ah. you're subconsciously scanning it because we're capable of scanning a huge amount of information. Um, yeah. I didn't realise until then. Enough. I'm going back through. I'm going back through my brain. Sorry, mate. Is that I'm thinking about that now? Is I imagine myself driving and I think, fuck, like shit. When I drive, I don't like. You doze off for an hour, like, and you're just driving, and they're like, like not in that way, but like you're just driving because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's second nature. Like it's like you're not you're doing it naturally. You're yeah. predicting that you're going to get home safely. Yeah, and you'll you'll be stopped yeah. at the lights without realising because subconsciously you've you've identified that cue, which would be the light changing. You predicted that you need to stop, and you stop. Like that's, you know, the very basis of an autonomous habit. Yeah. Um, but if you go back even to when you learnt to drive, so there's, there's all these patterns you don't understand. So people that learn to drive are quite anxious, which is why you know you get take some while to learn to drive where they've got the space to make errors. Um, and then you know now people are watching Netflix on their phone and eating hamburger and you know, flying down the freeway because they've been driving for so long they perceive that they've understand enough patterns that they can get away with that you know as compared to when they first started driving you know and then if you continually expose yourself to a progressive level of complexity you get to formula one eventually yeah so to speak like obviously you know we're talking very high end there, but you know for, yeah, we don't want everyone to become <laughs> formula one drivers <laughs> for of analogy that's kind of how you get there like they didn't start out yeah. in formula one they they started out a lot younger so they're time frame for these exposures is a lot longer but they start out in go-karts and they work their way up where they become progressively more comfortable under yeah uh, complexity that they're familiar with like if you threw someone straight in that end it's just not going to work yeah yeah no like you you just can't start at that top Mm, end so mm. like for and it works the same for anything like uh in combat like you often see guys that are new to that like they're having trouble predicting what's going to happen and you can see their awareness is a little bit lower. Uh, but then after a while, so like, there, mate? they're just doing things autonomously, you know what I mean, without thinking about half of it. And they're taking in information they're not even aware of and acting on it. Mm, mm. So when so you're saying that repetition and constant yeah. exposure so, is the way you can therefore, you know, without you know, become resilient, become better. 
Yeah, yeah. So I sort of look at resilience as almost is just a decision making type of activity. Um, uh, you know, like if you've never done anything and it, and you're given a task that you've never done, like initially or straight away, there's a fear there because you know you might be concerned that you're not going to be able to do it. There could be a lot of things riding on this. Like there's something that you're afraid of, um, which upregulates your threat response, vigilance, this sort of thing. But as soon as you start getting the little bits of information you need to start that first step, then you're just looking at information to make a decision as to, okay, well, how do I do this step? What's the next step following that? Um, uh, you know what I mean? So like even the PhD I'm doing, I've never done a PhD before. And when I first, <laughs> when I first started, everyone talks about like we're, we're really good at priming everyone with negative information so that it almost influences a lot of these outcomes just through the messages that we give. Um well, I don't really listen to it so much. Like people say, oh, they're really difficult, all this sort of thing. I was like, oh, fair enough, I'll find out for myself. So I start, I've got next to no information about how to do it. But the, everything's there where I can find that information. I've got a network where I can lean on to get that information. As soon as you start getting a little bit, you start making progress. And it's just, it's literally for me, it's just decision making. Mm, you look at the information yeah. you've got in front of you and you decide what's the best course of action and then off you go. Yeah. And then you just yeah, ad- yeah. adapt as you need to. So, you know, if you're constantly getting the information in, you can make the decisions. It's not so much any about resilience anymore. It's just about continuing to get the information you need to make the decisions to get the outcome you want. Yeah, yeah. It's like a person who's trying to lose weight or something. Like they're going to constantly make good decisions about their diet or not pick at a food that they love or go through the drive-through. They're going to constantly build greater resilience and accountability to eat, have healthier habits, like yeah. just for example. Yeah, yeah. And like once you've got the habits, it's – like there's nothing to do with resilience anymore. You just build a habit. Um, mm. You know, like a habit change is the other thing which sort of becomes very deliberate. Like habit change itself, there's a lot of friction points in there. There's a lot of avoidance. There's a lot of discomfort, which is where people fail on a lot of it. Mm. Um, and then, you know, you can start talking about the motivators behind it. You know, there's a lot of other other factors involved where it sort of gets a little bit murky and it becomes very individualised, you know, because we're, we're not, we don't all think the same. We don't respond to things the same. We don't view the world the same. So it's very difficult to try and, you know, try and understand what another human being is thinking, you know, why they're acting like that, that sort of thing. Like it gets very, very difficult. Yeah. yeah. I could imagine um, through your time studying all this that that would be quite a difficult aspect of it. Is that the fact that we are quite different in our responses and things like that? Is that uh, fair to say? I don't really go into that too much sort of thing. So yeah, the angle I'm coming from, it's sort of um, – it's a group that essentially has the same, very similar yeah. motivation. They're after a very um, sort of group-identified outcome. So there are a lot of similarities. Um, and then a lot of it does transfer to other um, sort of industry or other domains because it's just looking at the threat response itself and then how we filter that information. Um, once you go into the motivation, then, you know, it's a completely new topic and it's well outside. So I'm coming from the sort of coaching yeah. science, physiology side of things where I'm careful not to go too far into the psychology because it's just, it's a massive yeah. field like psychology, is such a huge field and I don't want to yeah. head over there because then I'll just get belted you know, through my theory. Um, but, like, um, there's a place, for, obviously, for both because they're so connected as well. Oh, like a lot of these, Yeah. Because yeah. like, a lot of these things I definitely am exposed to in my range of work as well in mental health. Yeah, well, none of them work independent of each other. Uh, mm, know, people forget that. 
people for, definitely forget that. Yeah. For purposes of education and qualification, it's like we've we've put ourselves in these silos or these little lanes. Um, and then some people won't cross them. Some people get upset when you do cross them. Like I sort of look at it like, well, if I go into a little bit of psychology and someone's going to get upset, then that's a threat to them. Sort of like, you know. But for me to net, to learn and understand what I want, I have to go into these lanes. So I have to seek out the people that have the information that are going to help me with what I want. Uh, and generally, it's usually not a problem. Uh, but, yeah, like even in sport, like I was involved in a certain area. But to understand the area I was in, I had to understand much broader concepts from a lot of other disciplines, um, you know, because you just can't treat one thing with a human being because they are such a complex organism, so to speak. Yeah. And everything, like from your nutrition to your exercise to your sleep to how many decisions you make, how much you exercise, all these impact the quality of the information that you're getting in and your decisions. Um, you know, like the work I did on the Masters of Research was around like cognitive fatigue interferes with your actual physical performance and then physical yeah. performance impairs your cognitive function. So they work hand in hand, um, you know, like a degradation of one impacts the other. And then, you know, if you throw sleep and nutrition in there, then they're just another factor that sort of increases the magnitude of just how poor your decision-making can become or how the other side is how you optimise your ability to make really good decisions. Yeah. So, did you ever come across people while in during your time at the Reds or athletes that you know they might have been the most physically p- gifted person, but in your scope of work now couldn't make the greatest of decisions most of the time? Um, yeah. So when you look at athletes or in sports teams, so a lot of your yeah. your younger guys physically they're superior, like they could be physically dominant. But their ability to read the game, understand yeah. patterns within it and have the experience to be in the right place at the right time is a lot lower. So they use a lot more energy making up for sort of cognitive errors in their decision-making. Ah, uh, um, yeah. Where, you know, your old bull, like, they just know where to be and when to be there. Like, yeah. You know, like, they've made up for the fact that they're physically, you know, of a well, – or they're physically less capable – by the fact that they just know how to play the game. Like their experience lets them get away with that. So, you know, like if you could give that experience to a 20-year-old or a 22-year-old, like you'd have a really good athlete running around out there. Um, Mm. But, yeah, you can definitely see it. And then you can see sort of teams who physically could be dominant, but as a team they're not making the right decisions to allow them to control the game. Yeah, yeah, and I automatically think of the All Blacks. Yeah, like they, but yeah, comes down to yeah how well drilled they are. Um, yeah, you know, like a young team, it's it's difficult because you've got a whole coaching, um, like you've got years of coaching in front of them until they get to that point. But yeah, once you get to that point, you know, it becomes a lot easier. So I think you've still got to be able to adapt as everyone else is trying to out adapt you. Um, but yeah, sort of, it, it gets pretty interesting when you start looking at those sort of dynamics. It does. Yeah, is there? Is there any, um, like, can we have hereditary impacts on our, you know, like you talked about, our this threat response and things like that? Yeah. Has there yeah. been ev- evidence in, relace to, in release, yeah, relation to that, Dan? Yeah, I've seen, I haven't read it, but I've seen of some research that looks at a certain gene that is common in groups that are highly resilient. So I think it was US Special mm-hmm. Forces stuff they looked at. Um, there was a certain gene that they had, um, 
I'm not. I wasn't going to go into it too much because that's starting to get way outside of my field. <laughs> yeah, sorry, mate. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not going to start gene testing people. Um, yeah, and I know because it is still an emerging science. There's a lot of sort of arguments to and fro with it. Um, like a lot of the, the stuff that I read, I read pro, like for and against for a lot of it anyway, uh, and some of it's still a little bit inconclusive. Um, and then when you look at the work that Carol Dweck did around growth mindsets, I think it was less than 10% of people, uh, when they looked at kids, so kids are an easy population because you've got them quite raw, um, less than 10% had a growth mindset sort of um, just through sort of um, natural factors or genetic factors sort of thing or whatever is associated with it. Um, So you would have to argue that that's potentially hereditary. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. And 10%, 10% had that growth mindset. Yeah, I think it was only. less than 10% that they found on average. Um, but even like the growth mindset stuff, so I've sort of seen a lot of work around that and that's kind of – it's pretty much what happens when research gets into mainstream media and then sort of mm. gets pushed. Is It just gets really, really diluted from what the original research was. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, can, I can totally imagine yeah, that. Yeah, well, like stuff now we can give your kids a colouring book for a growth mindset because they colour in the controllables. It's like, nope, that's, that's pretty much a colouring book for the kids. Um, but they don't work at that level. They're still trying to understand much broader concepts. Um, but pretty much what they did from their work was that at the, the peak of friction for a challenge, the kids with a growth mindset, they'll lean into it. So they'll actually get more immersed in the problem than avoid it. Mm. Um, so like when yeah. you look at now so you could sort of based on that statistically 10% of our population now are going to lean into the current problem or less than 10% and the and the other lot are likely to start looking at the threats and the more threats they see the more fears they're going to get the more fears the more they go into avoidance behaviours uh. uh, and I'm not going to go into avoidance behaviours because well, I think most people understand where that leads um, mm, but yeah. that you know, that just increases your problems. Like the magnitude of your problems, it gets bigger and bigger. Because once you go into these avoidance behaviours and they're generally very negative behaviours, like you start losing your sleep, you know, you start losing your fitness. There starts all these actual impactors that change your physiological cognitive function and you just things get worse and worse and then you become even more sort of uh, threat orientated. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like where if you kind of, if they're able to, lean into it, look for the the relevant information in what's around them. They could start to find solutions to your problem's not going to go away. Like not all problems are going to go away. No, nah, nah, definitely but, not, yeah. That, those dishes and those clothes <laughs> are still going to be put away. Yeah, like, you're going to go through some hard time. Um, but if you can find the information that's going to minimise that impact, then you're definitely coming out better on the other side. And yeah. then, then like who's to say that we're not going to be in this predicament in another two years' time? Like we exactly. could come out, we could come out of this, and we could go into something far worse. So, like, even I don't usually do too much topical stuff, um, but like I look at this as okay, nothing lasts forever. So this is just something that I've got to go through for X period, mm-hmm. and then two, the same, yeah, two or three months once it's finished, I'll have forgotten about it mostly. Like, okay, well, that's something I did, but I'll remember certain strategies that I used to minimise the impact. So when I see this pattern again, like, okay, well, I remember what I did last time. All I've got to do is adapt that a little bit to this time and then that should get me through it. Where, yeah, you know, 100%. if you sort of succumb to your problems, then one, you're not growing, so you're not going to take anything into the next time. 
and then you just avoid your problem. Where yeah, enabling yourself, if yeah, you continue to avoid, yeah. yeah, and the problem's not going to go away. Like it's problems don't just miraculously disappear or solve themselves. Like you actually have to do something to solve it or minimize its yeah. impact. And I think that's very important, especially in this day and age. Like we got so many factors and stresses that we'd rather just avoid most of them because it's easier that way. Yeah, and distractions <laughs> never been easier. Like we walk around with the most effective distraction tool in our pocket every day. Yes, like it. Mm-hmm everything's on there like we've never had access to so much stuff so easily um so yeah it's really easy to get distracted like even people will use it because they don't like the discomfort of silence um well they don't like being disconnected or not being you know involved or they don't like their own being and being with themselves in their space like you (laughs) said yeah so um yeah it gets quite interesting but it's really easy to get distracted and again that's just more information that you've got to filter um you know, where if you just took some time to switch off and do nothing, you know, like that is relaxation. And I actually remember reading something a while ago that some of the healthiest cultures all have a way of doing nothing. Like the, I think it was the Japanese yeah. the, the green tea. Certain cultures, they'd go out and they'd feed ducks at lunch or whatever it was or walks. Or, but they all had, you know, almost a set period throughout the day where they did nothing for 20 minutes. And it's almost like they're reset. Yeah, and it's it's funny. Yeah, that's a great point because that was going to be my next question is surely some of these, you know, I quote primitive style cultures, like you mentioned before, um, have surely got some of those better ability to make those good decisions and regulate themselves much more effectively. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you're making a decision from a really good cognitive space, then it's going to be a better decision because you're going to filter your information much better. So, like, if you – make a decision in the morning when you're fresh before you've had any interaction with anyone or, mm. you know, got onto social media or watched the news or watch or had any external information come in and start to influence your, your thoughts, then you're going to, you know, be much better at seeing everything and making a good decision. You know, I mean, like they used to say sleep on your problems. Um, there's almost some science that would merit that where, you know, your problem solving does get a lot better after a full night's sleep because in the morning you're quite fresh. Um, yeah. So, 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 how important is sleep in reg- making those good decisions? So, oh, I want to kind of wrap it up in like, if we want to optimize our performance or our ability to be bloody human and make these good decisions, <laughs> um, is it is it um, is it all stre- uh, sleep or what other strategies can we utilize as humans? Yeah, so, the big three. So, like when you talk about all your other little things that you can do, like they're all one percenters. So, if you're not sleeping well enough, if you're not taking in good food and you're not exercising so movement nutrition and sleep they're your big three like they'll once you get those things tuned away then most other things will fall into place like there's just some one percenters around that will sort of start to help with that real high functioning um or that high performance sort of stuff but you know if you're not getting more than six hours then there's not much you can do you're just not getting the recovery you need and that's both cognitively and physically so i think it was under six hours and you're not likely to be reconciling any emotion from your previous day so you're going to carry that forward into your next day um that's interesting yeah yeah, your chance of a false positive for a threat goes right up i think it's like 30 percent more likely to identify a neutral threat stimulus as a negative threat stimulus so like if you've been up all night and you go into the office or your work environment the nonverbal communication that you're reading for a threat 
it's more likely to indicate threats. So straight away you're going to be regarded, you're going to be prepared for conflict and people are going to see that in your body language. So, you know, you're almost creating this environment for conflict just because you haven't slept properly. Um, but we're, we're really, really good at picking up on a lot of these little subtle nonverbal communication cues uh, and we do it every day. Like every day we look for, like within an office environment, people will scan for things that are out of the normal because they're looking for the normal pattern so they can predict how the day is going to go. And as soon as something's out of the normal, that's a potential threat. Yeah, you know I mean, so vigilance goes up. Uh, so if you're not getting that sleep, like it has huge impacts. Um, and like I think they were sort of talking about lack of sleep um, as like your type 3 diabetes because of the nutritional changes from lack of sleep around the foods that you look for. Um, I think it's linked to Alzheimer's, uh, all these cognitive degeneration yeah, diseases. Like when you you look through this, and there's whole sleep researchers out there, like if you want to really look at it, uh, I think Dr. Matthew Walker is one of the ones that... Yeah, he's our podcast with Joe Rogan's unbelievable. Yeah, like, and that's only yeah. a snippet. Um, like he's got a really, really good book. Uh, that I definitely recommend reading, but you know, at the end of the day, like if you're not sleeping, then you're going to have a lot of problems that are, are fixed by something that's free. You know what I mean? Um, and then nutrition is a massive one, and I don't get involved in that much because nutrition is its own science, and I think there's just so much debate yeah. out there. Um, I don't want to get involved in any of that. I've got other things to do, than, and that's all just threat. When you look at it, it's all just threat response between you know different nutritional arguments. Um, yeah. And then exercise. And exercise in itself doesn't have to be anything extreme because uh, low-intensity exercise will actually bring down cortisol levels. Uh, it almost works as a balancing for when you are under periods of high stress or high um, mm. intense workloads, these sort of things. Uh, so lower-intensity cardio is better at actually down-regulating. Yeah. High-intensity is good because it increases your fitness a little bit quicker, but too much of it will keep you in that sort of over-aroused state because... And then you're losing your ability to recover as well if you're yeah, going yeah. too high intensity. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's like your chances of soft tissue injury go up. There's all these physiological things because your recovery is just not there. So if you're not sleeping, you're not eating well and you're trying to make up for that by doing a lot of high-intensity exercise to sort of, you know, work out the anger, then, you know, it's, it's a matter of time before something gives. Like it's not if, it's just when. Um, yeah, you know, what I mean? so you need to be able to alternate your training intensity so that you can regulate and you allow time or periods where you can sort of lower intensity to come down, then higher intensity when you're in a state where you can take on those workloads, but you need the recovery on the other side of it. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm that's not, you know, that's there's, there's three pillars, those things are, you know, really. And I'm quite interested in the fact of, you know, we get this thing of, you know, <laughs> you know. I'm going to say, for example, you know, like the guys like David Goggins, I'll tell people like they're outliers, people like that who can have that ability to do that. Yeah. But like like those people that say, you know, train hard and smash yourself and I'm quite interested in your insight with this. But really it's not nothing like that. You don't have to go and do that. Like the, the, the other pillars are so much more important than smashing yourself each day and I'm yeah. so fascinated by that connection of, like you say, threat response and the physio, like, you know, the the cognitive and the central nervous style type of things compare in relation to the physical because you know, even though there is some good, if you, you know, work out hard and you build a bit of resilience physically, it's going to help the other way and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and everything kind of needs to be in appropriate amounts for you. 
sort of mm. like, honestly, like I could do the same session as 15 people, but we're all going to have a different response. We're all going to take a different period of time to recover. Um, you know, I mean, like it's very, very individualized the way we respond and adapt to things, um, which makes it really complex when you, you're sort of trying to work with athletes or large groups. Because, yeah, like, until as you, you would know. Yeah. yeah, until you really know someone and how they respond, you're kind of just giving them a stimulus and then you're looking to see how they respond sort of thing, you know, and you're going to try and determine, you know, how is everyone responding based on everyone else. And there's a number of tools that obviously you can use to assist you in that for your decision-making around who does what. Um, but, yeah, go on and try and follow a program that someone at a high level is doing. Um, I know everyone does it. Like they'll see someone who's at sort of the top 5% in what they do. They're like, okay, well, I've got to follow that program. Well, it's not. Well, you need to follow the program they were doing when they were 15 years ago. Yes. You know I mean? Yes. Like, the level you're at now, you need to find where they were, what they were doing at that level, follow that program. Um, but we don't really work like that. We're sort of another bias that we have is we just want to jump on whatever's working for the high-end guy. Um, you know, and even then, a lot of the high-end guys that are sort of uh, are running their own thing, like do they completely understand why they were being coached that way? Um, so, yeah, the whole fitness industry kind of intrigues me as well a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and especially from a guy like yourself who has been down the path of strength conditioning and things like that. Yeah, yeah, sort of thing. So, like, I, a lot of the stuff I do with me is still trial and error, sort of. Mm. Thing. So, um, you know, I look at it, someone else, and I was like, and think, there's no way I have the optimal program for them. Yeah, <laughs> I've got a, a good base to start from, and then we're going to see how it goes from there. Mm, yeah, and. Like that's because I've had a few guests who are athletes and you know in the fitness industry and quite and it's all that same message and I'm experiencing it myself. I'm only 25, 26. Is that I look back at how I was eight years ago and it's just all trying. Like I've tried everything under the sun, but at least I know what I'm getting closer to what works for me. Yeah, I'm cutting yeah. out the things that don't work for me. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's where the really good athletes have a really good relationship with their coach, or they've got access to enough information that they can modify it as they need to and understand, you know, this worked well, but if we do this, it's going to work great, you know, and, and this didn't work at all. You know, it may have worked for the guy next to him, but it didn't work for them um, sort of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely a lot of art involved with the science of it, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Now, Dan, just to sum it all up, mate, just for a normal, just to round things up, where can uh, my listeners find you, mate? That was amazing. Where can they find you on various platforms? Great, yeah. man. Yeah, so um, I sort of got some social media now. I've had it going for the last year, slowly building it. Um, so I've got uh, just Daniel Cooper is what I'm on Facebook uh, and LinkedIn under the same. And then Instagram is just Dan Cooper underscore MSC. Uh, and then I've got a website that I'm starting to work on now as well, which is just uh, comanche.com.au. So that's just spelt uh, K-O-M-A-N-C-H-I. Perfect, mate. I appreciate you giving up your time. I hope you're going well in these tough times. But, um, mate, I got a lot out of this and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm sure my listeners will. I really appreciate you giving up your time, mate. Yeah, no, no problem at all. Um, yeah, well, the upside is I don't really do a super amount anyway. So, um, <laughs> the, 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 this hasn't really affected me too much because I'm studying from home. Um, and there'd be some irony if I was really struggling at the moment anyway between what I was doing and what I was preaching. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's been a, like a big part 
now for me is to sort of try and uh, just get better information out there for people to sort of you know increase their level of resilience or make better decisions because uh, I, I honestly think as human beings we could be a lot better than what we are if we changed the way we thought and the way we sort of message I totally agree yeah. yeah I totally agree no, thanks heaps Dan yeah, thank no you problem. I really appreciate no it no problems cheers mate All right, thanks for having me on mate see ya how about that for an episode guys I hope you all really enjoyed that one Quick shout out to my man Michael Peters, the man behind the camera, and also big, big love to 3RPC for allowing us to utilize the studio space. Without you guys, none of this would be possible, so big thank you. Please make sure you all follow at A Chat With Pat on Instagram, subscribe to the podcast via Spotify and iTunes, and please don't be afraid to leave a review. We are open to all feedback to make this as good as possible for all our listeners. Stay safe, and all my love, guys. Yeah.